Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Power Hour podcast. We've got a great lineup, so let's get started. I'm Bill Miles with the Hilton Head Island Bluffton Chamber of Commerce, and we're delighted to have you with us today. We have some uh, via Zoom, others watching on the Beaufort County channel, as well as some watching on Facebook Live. So again, we're most appreciative of you joining us today. I don't know about you, but I think uh, spring is indeed on the way. It's certainly in the air and the weather's been wonderful. And hopefully many of you got a chance to get out and enjoy, enjoy the Hilton Head Island Seafood Festival last weekend. And what a great event it was. And a special shout out to Andrew Carmines and, and the board of directors at the Hilton Head Island Seafood Festival. Uh, several of the events were sold out. And I think you'll see that, that that's gonna be a theme as we continue this discussion today when we get to the RBC Heritage. So you don't want to miss that. Also want to mention that uh, the Darius Rucker Intercollegiate Golf Tournament is taking place at Long Cove today. It's the final round. It's the 10th annual D Darius Rucker Tournament. And uh, he's always so kind and with his time and not only to sponsor it, but also uh, provides a concert each year for the players. And so it's, uh, it's free to watch. You can go to Long Cove today and watch the final round. Or if you'd rather watch it on TV, it will be live on the Golf Channel. And I say that just to also let you know that this is the first year, that first time actually, that uh, uh, women's golf has been broadcast live on the Golf Channel other than their national championships. So we're delighted to have the Golf Channel on the island at Long Cove and uh, some terrific women's golfers. Well, we've got a lot to talk about today, and uh, we're going to talk everything from the Ukraine to real estate, pandemic, and the RBC heritage. I thought we'd, what we'd do today is just jump right into it, uh, talking about the U Ukraine. And, you know, it has a major impact and on not only in our nation, but right here for us in the low country. And last week, I was fortunate enough to sit on two calls with our first speaker today. And uh, I learned so much. He was so informative and knowledgeable. I asked him that day if he would join us for today's uh, morning's power hour. And he was kind enough to say so, to agree to do so. John Murphy was named to Washington's, Washington's most influential list of movers and shakers in Washington, D.C. He's on the board of the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, and he's the senior vice president for international policy at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. John plays a key role in the advocacy of business before Congress, foreign governments, and the World Trade Organization. John, welcome. We appreciate you being with us today and we know that your time is precious and it means a lot to us well thanks very much it's great to join you here this morning and i only wish it was in person uh, it's been uh, a little too long since i've been down to your neck of the woods but i'll always enjoy a visit uh, a pleasure to join you all this morning and talk a little bit about uh the war in ukraine the russian invasion and what it means for for us in the united states I'm sure I, I speak for all of us when I say that uh, our, our hearts go out to the Ukrainian people and in their suffering. Uh, Russia's invasion is completely unwarranted, and uh, it's remarkable to see the free world rallying to uh, support Ukraine. Um, I, I'm going to focus my comments here on, on the economic side of things and the sanctions and so forth that the United States is imposing. Um, you know, but I think it's it's useful to take a step back first um, because we're entering into all of this economic tension with Russia and just reflect on, you know, is Russia um, really a big deal in the world economy? Because in some ways it's not. 
Russia represents about 1% of global GDP. It's about 1.5% of global trade. U.S. trade directly with Russia is, is very limited. It's maybe our 30th largest uh, trading partner. Um, having said that, though, there are a number of areas where uh, Russia matters to the United States economically. As I think many of you know, it's a major producer of oil and gas. In some recent years, it's been the largest producer in the world. I think most recently, the United States has topped Russia. Um, and so what Russia does on energy markets um, has global implications. It can affect the, you know, the price of gasoline at the pump here. It certainly affects the price of natural gas in Europe, uh, which gets maybe 40% of its natural gas for heating homes and industry uh, from Russia. There's other specific commodities where Russia matters a lot too. It's the world's largest wheat producer. Uh, we're seeing uh, wheat prices surge. Uh, Ukraine is also a top producer. So the interruption there um, is going to drive up wheat prices, and that's going to hurt developing countries in particular. Uh, but other products like titanium, you know, the aerospace sector, which I know is uh, important in South Carolina, um, imports a lot of titanium from Russia. Um, I've heard from big uh, companies in that sector that they're, they're okay in the short term, uh, but something to keep an eye on. Palladium is used in catalytic converters for the auto sector. Uh, Russia is the major source of that metal as well. Aluminum, nickel, uh, Russia is the biggest exporter of fertilizer in the world. So there are these specific commodities where Russia matters. Now, um, what the United States and our allies have done um, is issue a set of sanctions on Russia that are really very powerful. These are not uh, the economic sanctions we've seen in the past. You think about sanctions on Cuba, sanctions on Iran. These are, are novel, uh, unprecedented, and they come in three categories, and I'll walk through them. It's financial sanctions, there's export controls, and finally, there's the sanctions on Russian oligarchs. Um, so first, the financial sanctions. What we saw on Sunday and, and executed on Monday was really the, um, the big one, uh, the, the, the nuclear bomb of sanctions, which is sanctions imposed on Russia's central bank. What these did is cut off uh, Russia from its foreign exchange reserves, from most of them. Um, Russia had, um, in some ways, you can see, been preparing for this day uh, by building up a foreign exchange war chest of $600 billion, really very large for the size of their economy. Uh, but that's not paper dollar bills sitting in a, in a vault in Moscow. Um, those are, you know, digits in Western banks and Western central banks for the most part. Um, so what the United States has done and what, what I think Putin didn't count on is uh, Russia no longer has access to most of that. Um, in addition, um, the US and our allies in Europe and, and some other countries around the world, such as Japan, have put major blocking sanctions on Russian banks. Um, about uh, Banks representing about 80% of the Russian banking system by, by assets have been subjected to these, um, these blocking uh, sanctions. That, that basically means that uh, folks in the outside world, companies can't really engage with them, can't transfer money back and forth. Um, the exception is uh, energy. Um, the Europeans and the, the US as well have not sanctioned transactions relating to energy. Um, and that's something that's still under consideration. 
Um, and yet, I would say that the, the overall impact of the sanctions we've seen so far is, is very powerful. Uh, the Russian economy um, came to um, a screeching halt on, on Monday as these kicked in. Uh, there were runs on banks. Banks were closed. People had very long lines at ATMs. People were not able to get cash. Payment systems were not operative. Uh, just to illustrate the subway system in Moscow, a lot of people you know, pay for it you know, using their, their smartphone, um, using Apple Pay or something like that, and none of that was working. So everybody had to go get cash and uh, cards to ride the subway to work or, or what have you. Um, and that's only going to spread in the days ahead. Um, so for American companies that have had some investments in Russia over the years, um, for many of them, this means that they're, they're not able to continue functioning. And what we've, we, we've seen um, quite a lot of fallout there. Another kind of sanction that we see is uh, the second bucket is export controls. And the United States is using a tool here called the Foreign Direct Product Rule. Um, some of you probably remember that the Trump administration used this tool um, on Huawei, which is large Chinese telecommunications equipment manufacturer. And it was used to devastating effect. Huawei's uh, revenue by last year had fallen by 30%. And what it does is it bans the sale to Huawei of American-made equipment, such as semiconductors or other technology products. What's being done here is that this is being applied to a whole country, in essence. Um, so it's not just American-made tech products that can't be sold to Russia. It's anything made with American technology. So Imagine um, uh, a Korean-made uh, laptop, or if it's assembled in China, say, if it has American semiconductors in it, if it has American software, if it's made on machinery or capital equipment that was made in the United States, it cannot be sold to Russia. And it's estimated this will cut off half of all of the um, tech exports to Russia. The impact of this for American companies is is really, it's, this is a compliance question that I know a lot of tech companies are looking at. Companies need to understand, uh, even if you don't think of yourself as an exporter to Russia, you know, you may, but you may be producing products that wind up in another product um, and that are later shipped to Russia. This is the kind of question, the kind of introspection that we see uh, companies engaging in right now. Finally, there's the sanctions on Russian oligarchs. Um, some people say that this is a, a very big deal. Uh, Russian billionaires who have their assets in the West have real estate in London or New York, uh, yachts at Monaco, maybe you know what one of these fellows owns the Chelsea Football Club in London. Uh, all of these are um, in the crosshairs. It's uh, I think it's not yet clear how influential this will be over Russia, uh, but these individuals. Um, have always enjoyed traveling to the West where they own property, send their kids to school, they pay vacation. And uh, it appears that the uh, welcome mat is no longer out for them. So what are, what, are the what are we seeing here in the real world in terms of the impact on American companies? Many, many American companies are, are simply uh, looking at these sanctions and they're leaving the Russian market. Um, for instance, the largest foreign investor in Moscow was BP, the, the big British headquartered uh, oil company. They walked away from a $25 billion investment um, in, uh, in Russia. We're seeing um, Shell, Exxon exit the country. 
Uh, Ford is um, exiting a joint venture uh, that they've had for many years there. Uh, BMW has stopped uh, manufacturing in Russia and selling there. Most, most foreign auto companies are no longer exporting to Russia. Um, for many of them, this isn't that big a deal, but for some of them, as I've mentioned, uh, Russia maybe is a critical source for inputs um, such as metals. Um, but what, one thing that I think we're seeing is almost a little bit of overcompliance from companies. These are very complex sanctions. Nobody wants to run afoul of them. And so companies are not going to take any chances. Uh, UPS and FedEx, for instance, have just halted all shipments to Russia. Uh, because it's too complicated to figure out what might be in those boxes that is compliant and what might not be. So you can understand the prudence behind that in these circumstances. So that's that's my overview. Um, I know we're all following the situation there. Uh, and uh, our hearts, again, our hearts go out to the Ukrainian people, but happy to take any quick questions, Bill, if there's time. Okay, John, thank you. Yes, we do have some uh, questions. And the first one's coming from Tom. And Tom is asking, what is Russia's what is Russia's break-even price per barrel of oil? I don't know that off the top of my head, but I'm struck at a piece in the Wall Street Journal today that I recommend. There's been a, a you know, there's really one global oil market, and uh, it's long been a. I've always thought, I've always heard that if one country stops buying, say, Russian oil, that others will simply buy it instead, and it's all the same. So if uh, you know Canada banned the import of Russian oil, well, the Chinese will just buy it, right? Apparently, it's more complicated than that. And we're seeing um, some what you might call overcompliance, uh, as the word I just used. Some American refineries are refusing to buy Russian oil. Um, they're, apparently, they're, there's not an impediment to them doing so, but you can, you can understand the calculus here, why they might not want to do that. Um, and what this is doing is it's pushing down um, the price of Russia's uh, heavy crude. Uh, they, there's like a separate benchmark for uh, Ural's uh, Russian crude. And so that's selling at a, at a steep discount in global markets. So that's, um, that's happening not because of sanctions. It's happening. Um, it's the market doing that to them. So, uh, you know, score one for the market, I guess. All right, thank you for that. And uh, Mary is asking, how long can Russia sustain these sanctions? Well, that's a good question. Um, these sanctions are, are really pretty devastating for the Russian financial system. And what that means for um, uh, the man on the street is uh, the value of their savings is way down. Uh, their ability to purchase uh, foreign currency Currency is is has disappeared. Many consumer goods will no longer be available. Um, for instance, Apple has announced that they're no longer going to sell products in Russia, even though they're not. You know, these are consumer goods. They're not banned in the same way as a lot of other tech products. But nonetheless, Apple is making that decision, and many other companies are doing this sort of thing as well. So, for for uh, the average Russian, these are these are going to be hard times. The question is. To what degree does Putin care about that? And uh, um, I'm a I'm a, a trade guy at a trade association in D.C. I, I don't have a window into his thinking. And he appears to be quite isolated. Uh, but I, I think there is hope that uh, 
this pressure will have some impact on him and sooner rather than later, given the, the dire situation in Ukraine. Okay, a few more questions for you, but uh, the, the next one is a, a statement that the, they sent in and someone said, gosh, he's good. So uh, I wanted to share that, share that with you, you as well. Uh, Raymond is asking, are there any economic sanctions left to put on Russia? So the one that's, that's left out there, of course, is energy. Um, and this is a real catch-22. Uh, and, you know, the, the United States government, you know, is, we all see the price of gas has gone up a lot. Um, that's painful. We don't want that to go further, but that's, that's the kind of thing that's in play here. And any of that that applies to the United States applies doubly to Europe. Uh, they're already paying a whole lot more for natural gas. None of it's been cut off. Uh, the Russian natural gas producers are continuing to pro provide it to their European customers. Uh, but we are seeing more calls for this. In fact, um, Senator Lindsey Graham has been quite outspoken that we should sanction energy from Russia. Um, and the Ukrainian uh, government, the Ukrainian ambassador, who, if you watched the State of the Union last night, she was a special guest there. She has been calling for this as well. So who knows, we may see movement in that direction, sanctions on energy. Jim is asking, has this level of economic sanctioning ever been levied against a country? It's a good question. Most, mostly the answer is no, but to some degree on Iran. Um, it's, I think that's the only country that's ever been hit with these, um, these uh, central bank sanctions. Um, and, you know, the Iranian, this, I'm, I'm talking about back in the Obama administration, this was done and it was, um, it was really quite devastating. And that was, that led to uh, uh, moves by the Iranian government for a time to, to shutter their, their nuclear weapon development program. So, uh, but it's, this has never been done to, uh, a large economy like Russia, which, as I said, is in some, it's the 12th largest in the world, but it's only 1% of the global economy. Um, so we've never seen a, a big economy like that basically cut off from the rest of the world. So we'll see how it goes. All right, two final questions for you. The first one is uh, asking, are you surprised Russia hasn't utilized cyber warfare more? I think I think we are surprised um, that uh, um, you know I'm not a military expert, but like probably many of you, I'm following this very closely online. It's fascinating. There's all kinds of open source intelligence where you can you can see uh, the the movements of of troops and and strikes, and um, you know the Russians have not um, engaged in cyber warfare in Ukraine as much as thought. They haven't. Uh, their air force has been largely ineffective. Um, they have not, there has not been cyber attacks on the West either. That's a very dangerous thing to do. And I think the Russians understand that. Uh, a cyber attack on the United States could be viewed as an act of war. Um, right now, the United States and Russia are not at war. Um, and I think the, uh, the administration and the Congress want to keep it that way. Uh, that could be very dangerous to the world's two leading nuclear powers. Um, but cyber warfare could potentially cross that line. And I think that's why you're not seeing it, at least uh, and surprisingly only seeing it in a limited way in Ukraine. All right. The final question is coming from Chris. And Chris is asking, how long can Russia sustain these type of sanctions? 
Um, I think there's, you know, to my earlier comment, you know, I, I think the, the Russian people are going to be suffering quite quickly. Uh, it's a different question. How long can Putin withstand it? You know, he's, he's uh, spending a lot of time in a bunker in the Ural Mountains, apparently. Um, I don't know. I, I think that in a week or two, we will see uh, just how prostrate uh, the Russian economy is. It's already reeling. The banks are all closed. It's, un it's unclear that they'll be able to open. Uh, the ruble has you know, lost um, well over half its value. Um, so we'll see. John, you've been terrific, and thank you so much for taking your time today. Uh, I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed it, and we'll uh, be sharing it with many others. And keep up the good work, and we appreciate you in the United States Chamber of Commerce. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be with you, and uh, hope to be with you all in person in the not-too-distant future. Thank you. All right. That was John Murphy, and what an asset he is for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. You know, while the, the worst of COVID hopefully is behind us, there's still questions to be answered about the future of vaccines and other information as we move through the pandemic. And here to uh, once again provide us the latest information is Dr. Jane Kelly, the uh, an epidemiologist with DHEC. Dr. Kelly, good morning. Kent, uh, let's try your volume one time. You're there we go. How about that? There we are. Good morning. All right. Well, good morning, and thank you for inviting me yet again. Um, hang on. I'm going to share my screen. There we go. I do have some good news, uh, and uh, as always, delivering it with a, a bit of caution. Um, but let me tell you about the latest statistics, some changes and recommendations from CDC and some changes and recommendations and policies with DHEC. Here is our epidemiological curve. And as you can see for the following that green line, which is a moving average seven day count of new cases of COVID-19 in South Carolina. And we have had seven consecutive weeks of decreasing new cases. Now, I'd take that with a little bit of grain of salt because what this does not capture are people who do at-home tests. So if this was an at-home test, uh, it is not reported to us, and so we don't have that information. But this does capture, for example, tests done by the school nurse on child in school who has symptoms or uh, is involved in routine testing or tests to stay. Here we've got our data for the, from the vaccine dashboard that 54.2% of people in South Carolina ages five and up have had have completed vaccination. They've had at least two doses of Pfizer or Moderna or the Janssen followed by an additional dose of another vaccine. I was just looking up the uh, the rate for the U.S. overall, because South Carolina is lower in terms of our vaccination status than the U.S. overall, especially when we look at older adults. So, for example, in the U.S. overall, uh, people ages 50 to 64, 80 percent of them are fully vaccinated, ages 65 to 74, more than 90 percent, and ages 75 and up more than 85 percent. I'm sorry, I didn't have time to get those specific details for South Carolina, but we're a little bit less, basically, in each one of those categories. 
Um, we have the most vulnerable people, the people who are most at risk for severe disease vaccinated. And though uh, Omicron is concerning because it, it spreads more easily, it does not appear to cause more severe disease. And vaccine is still effective against preventing severe disease. And I also want to talk about the people who may or may not have been vaccinated, but who had Omicron. So for example, I think on previous calls, I've talked about if you had um, uh, COVID-19, but you had the Delta variant or you had another variant earlier in the pandemic, you might not have protection against Omicron. But what about if you had Omicron, will that protect you against this new variant that is emerging called BA2? BA2 is similar to Omicron. It's got a lot of the same uh, mutations as Omicron but it's got a number of additional mutations. The good news is that if you had Omicron infection, there is high protection against reinfection with BA2. We've only had a few cases of BA2 reported in South Carolina and really just a handful nationwide, but I know there's been concern that, oh no, here comes yet another variant. You know, we're gonna have another surge. Not necessarily. Vaccine is highly effective against BA2, and Omicron prior infection is effective against BA2. Of course, the best protection would be if you were infected, you can increase your protection by also getting vaccinated. Let's talk about CDC guidance change, and DHEC is uh, adopting these guidance changes as well. CDC is no longer recommending universal case investigation, contact tracing. And what do I mean by that? No longer recommending that every single case gets a phone call and a list of you know, their contacts and trying to contact those people and give them advice on what to do. They do prioritize, it's not doing away with contact investigation completely, it is prioritizing you know, groups or settings with increased risk, for example, long-term care facilities or outbreaks in schools or outbreaks in correctional facilities, uh, groups that might have been exposed in the previous five days certainly will still do case investigation and contact tracing. But why the change? Really, this what we've been doing is unsustainable. You probably, you may have personally experienced this, that during the Omicron surge, we couldn't keep up. Nobody could keep up with doing the case investigation and contact tracing of everyone because there were just too many numbers. And, you know, this is a resource issue. You know, while we have been putting so many resources, not just in South Carolina, but nation, nation, nationally into COVID, other things that public health normally does have fallen by the wayside. You know, we've had uh, increases in STDs. Uh, there have been drops in the number of people with HIV taking uh, uh, on, not on, not number of people on HIV, but the people who are at, at risk for HIV, are, uh, there's been a decrease in services to them. So what we, the shift going on here is a focus on public education, encouraging people if you test positive, isolate, and inform your close contacts. And I've got the links to the information on these slides. So when I send you the slides, you can link if you want to read more any of these blue underlines. Um, talk their advice about quarantine and getting tested and masks, travel precautions, et cetera. We are increasing our focus on COVID-19 vaccinations. 
there are other proven prevention strategies such as wearing masks. You know, we are not completely tossing masks out the window. Certainly the restrictions around masking and the recommendations have eased, but easing doesn't mean that they are completely thrown out the window. There's certainly situations in which we would recommend people wear a mask in a crowded indoor setting. CDC has also changed some of their recommendations for what measures should we monitor? And I took this slide directly from a February 25th, um, uh, the um, ACIP meeting discussing these community levels and other prevention strategy changes. So if you want to learn more, you can click on that link, go to the transcript, or you can see the recording, you can see all of their slides. I'm not gonna show all of their slides, it would take too much time, but I'm gonna show a few of them to show what the changes have been. This is what CDC used to recommend when we would talk about community transmission levels. Are they high, moderate, low? And for a long time, no, for a while, there were hardly any counties in the entire country that weren't at substantial or high transmission. And certainly that was true for South Carolina. This indicator helped guide decisions for businesses, employers, schools about you know, prevention measures. It was first implemented in September 2020, which seems like a long time ago. And it looked at two particular measures number of new cases per 100,000 people in the last, in the previous five, seven days, and the percent positivity. CDC has changed their recommendation. So this is what our old community transmission map looks like, you know, in terms of high or substantial transmission. This is still on our DHEC website right now. We are working to change this. Hopefully we will get this changed this week, but that's what it used to look like for community transmission, looks like it's substantial or high everywhere, even though we know that with Omicron, the number of cases drastically decreasing and finally hospitalizations and deaths are coming down. So why is CDC recommending this shift and why is DHEC taking this shift? Because we need to look at what are the most relevant measures. You know, do we care? about new cases of people getting the sniffles? Do we care that much about you know, new breakthrough infections if they don't lead to severe disease? The most important thing is hospitalizations, severe disease, and death. So what we're shifting to is looking at these other measures. We know right now we have high levels of population immunity. We, in South Carolina, we only have 54% of people fully vaccinated, but we've also had a lot of people who have had Omicron infection, and we know that they have some immunity on the basis of that. We also know that boosters do what they're supposed to do, give you an increase in your immunity. So we want to, uh, we, we want to focus on the most important thing, and that is preventing severe disease, minimizing burden on our healthcare system and protecting the most vulnerable. So the three new things you're gonna be looking at, still looking at new cases per 100,000, but also looking, focusing not so much on that percent positive business because it's becoming increasingly inaccurate as people are testing at home, but rather look at hospitalizations per 100,000, and this is by county, and the percent of staffed inpatient beds occupied by COVID-19. So a shift from the old indicators 
to these new ones. And this is again from CDC. I didn't go into the science of how they chose these metrics, but if you wanna know more, you can go to that link. They've got an extensive explanation. So what does that mean for the country as a whole? We still have a lot of places high, but we have also a number of places that are medium or low. In fact, if you go by population, 70% of the people in the United States live in a county that is either at low or medium uh, community, tra community transmission, community levels. Where are we in South Carolina? You can see Beaufort County, community level is low. A number of other places it, it, in the state are still at high, but we are trending downward quickly. What are the prevention measures you should take? If you live in a county that is low, it's recommended you get vaccinated, get tested if you have symptoms. People can always wear a mask. People can always choose. And certainly if you as an individual are at increased risk because you're older or you have a, a medical condition, you can always choose to mask, but you can use these recommendations to make local decisions. If you're in a county at medium risk, then we've got more higher recommendations, more support for wearing a mask. And if you're high, it's still a recommended, there's no mask mandate, but it's highly recommended that you mask indoors. There are a number of changes in school guidance, but at this point I'm going to ask Bill, I know time is short and I didn't see the agenda, whether you've got other speakers, do you want me to go through this changes in school guidance or should I stop here to take questions? Dr. Kelly, thank you. And I think this is a good good place to stop and, and have a few questions so we have time. And, and I can uh, certainly send you the slides so that people will have that information. Great, that'll be very helpful, thank you. Our first question is coming from Art and Art is asking, where is the best source of information for us to make daily decisions on masking, attending gatherings and other things? Right now, I'd have to say it's the CDC website, and I've, I've included that link. Um, we are updating our DHEC website, but there's a lot happening fast, and it, we probably won't have it updated until the end of this week. All right. Debbie is asking, do you envision we will be doing an annual COVID vaccine just like we do for the flu and pneumonia? Perhaps. That's hard to say. Flu is, flu is a little bit different. Flu, it's actually not a booster each year. Every year, the flu is a, is a different virus. Um, in fact, sometimes there are several flu viruses that are circulating. That's why you need a new flu vaccine every year. COVID, it's tricky and it's hard to say. The issue is whether new variants will continue to emerge. This, vaccine, this virus seems to mutate quickly. On the other hand, our current boosters are very effective against these new, uh, the new Omicron and BA2. So it might be that we don't need an annual vaccine. I, it's really hard to tell. It's going to depend upon um, if a new variant emerges and our vaccines need to be changed. Uh, and it will also depend upon uh, waning immunity. So sorry that I can't tell you that as yet. All right. Next question is coming from Rose, and Rose is asking, how did how did flu rates this winter compare to last? Interesting. Flu um, started out slowly with you know mild, uh, you know small numbers, and then we went up to high numbers for a little while, and we're back down to moderate to low levels. So I I don't know whether that's a a function of people not getting 
getting tested or people still wearing masks during the Omicron surge or because I don't think our vaccination rates really went up. Um, remember, we're not done quite with flu yet. Flu could still come back again as people unmask. Uh, but we've had lower. We had certainly more than last year, but not as much as the years before. All right, Dr. Kelly, our last question is coming from Molly, and Molly is asking, are we almost back to pre-pandemic normal, or will we be soon? Well, it's uh, tough. Like Yogi Berra says, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future, um, but that is certainly the direction in which we are going right now, that we're returning to what I would call a new normal, that COVID is still there, and COVID can still cause severe disease, so that's why we are still highly recommending people get vaccinated. Uh, because vaccine will keep you out of the out of the hospital, out of the morgue. Um, but it does look like we are headed that way. We're still a little bit worried about what might happen this summer as people travel more. Um, but it does look like we are headed in a good direction. Dr. Kelly, thank you for joining us again today. And uh, as always, her slides will be available and we're happy to share those with you. Always a wealth of information. And thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Kelly. Thank you. All right. Hilton Head Island was just named last week by Realtor.com as the fourth top luxury market in the country right now. That's a pretty big honor. And uh, we're fortunate to have with us today to give us a glimpse of that is Gene Beck. And Gene's the CEO of the Hilton Head Area Association of Realtors. Gene, good to see you. And uh, Cheryl. Share all the good real estate news with us. <laughs> all the real good real estate news. Okay. Well, it's kind of a, a mix, I think, a little bit of the real estate news. So let's start with this about the real estate news. A career in real estate. What about that? You know, this market has changed and shifted so much that there's the big rethink or the big resignation that were talked about over um, COVID-19. People have rethought about their career and their lifestyle and not just moving, but what are they doing for a living? Um, and Google just announced this last month that real estate was the top career search um, in um, for job searches um, in the country. So a lot of people looking at the real at real estate as a career as they start to see this market, how, how it's moved so much. And that's pretty much so secular. Every time we have a shift, we seem to see more people um, come into real estate. Currently, right now, our association has 1,551 Realtor members who are serving throughout Beaufort County and Jasper County. Uh, for the most part, our membership services south of the broad. Um, and then um, certainly out to Southern Jasper County with, with um, Hardyville as well. So a lot of people coming in. We've seen a big increase in Realtors um, in our association this past two years as people have shifted from a career. As far as the real estate market, though, um, you know, you can, you can be a salesman, but if you have nothing to sell, that can be very difficult. And that's kind of where we are right now. Our inventory is at historical lows. Um, where we have very limited number of properties for sale, but still a great buyer demand, right? People are still interested in coming here and buying. So we, um, we've got our realtors working really hard. And let me give you some thoughts on that about if you're out there trying to buy real estate and what that means for you. So right now, the conditions are still continue to be multiple offers. So you have to be in a position to move. You've got to be able to, and I don't mean physically move, move meaning signing that contract. You've got to be in a position where you either have cash, 
A lot of contingencies are being waived at this market right now. Um, you've got to be able to show your, your earnest money, your deposit, that you're true in your position to buy that property. You know, it's critical right now when you're working with a realtor that you talk about your strategies. What are your goals? What do you want to achieve? And what's your urgency? And most importantly, set your expectations because there's a lot of people out there that are trying multiple times for properties over and over and are feeling disappointed because they're not getting them. There's some people, I just talked to a friend of mine who was up in the Charleston area. She put 16 offers in before finally getting a property. So you know that that market is going to, you know, you're not, you, your likelihood of getting something could be very low. I had another realtor tell me this past week that he put in over five offers uh, for five different clients and none of them got that contract. So, and that's a well-experienced realtor. So buyers have to be prepared and be prepared emotionally that they may not be the one getting that property, but cash continues to be king. Um, and it's not only just the cash, but it's that contingency waivers and those um, and those uh, earnest money deposits that are important. Um, be mindful though, those contingency waivers do not mean that you cannot inspect a property. We certainly encourage anyone when they're purchasing um, a, a property that they will go and get it inspected. Uh, you may not get the repairs that you want to, uh, you would like to have done uh, if anything should be found, but realize that it's always certainly important for you to do your due diligence as well when you're purchasing a property and consider getting that home inspection. So what about the seller? What should the seller expect in this market? You know, um, people kind of think, oh, the market's so great, my house will sell in no time and, and I'll be um, off the market before I know it. Well, yes, but maybe. Um, you know, every property is different. Their conditions are different in, um, inside properties. You know, what year is your roof? What year is your kitchen? How much yard do you have? Um, all those things can help to uh, price a property. But that's where I can't tell you how a realtor can help you in that. So the data is changing so fast because the market is moving quickly. And that's where a realtor has all that data through the multiple listing service with their, with their membership to the MLS and why the MLS multiple listing service in our country is so important uh, for that data and that cooperation that realtors have in sharing. So it's real. Um, so having a realtor by your side, um, not only for your pricing strategy, but for the strategy that you're going to use when you get those multiple offers. Some people are getting five, 10, 15 offers on a property and having a realtor behind you, helping you to understand all those, um, those uh, contracts and those contingencies and what's being offered um, is vital to you to make an informed decision as well. Also want to make sure, again, that emotional part of it, you know, you got to be prepared. You know, some people, some properties are showing 30 or 40 times in two or three days. So you might want to have to uh, go find yourself a, a room at the at the, uh, the West End or over at the Sinesta or one of our properties, spend a couple of days out of your house and let all those realtors show the property so you can get the, the best offer that, that uh, will satisfy your goals as well. So um, a lot moving parts on that. So what, let's talk about something else that's kind of fun. Um, what, are, what are people looking for now? So we talked about the great resignation and we talked about people changing their lifestyle and all through COVID, what did people want? They wanted outside, um, outside areas. That's real important. I had one realtor tell me the other day, every client I have wants either a pool or they want be near water. 
So people are looking for that, you know, serene view, that um, outside area where they can entertain and 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 be a part of nature, uh, which is perfect for Hilton Head in our low country, right? With our with our environment. Um, they also want properties that, of course, have home offices, right? We got that trend of people working from home. So home offices still are big. Also kitchens. Everybody loves a big kitchen. That's always the important gathering space. But here's something that I just read, a new trend that they're finding um, nationwide. People want home bars. They're looking for places where they can set up a uh, bar in their house, whether it be a traditional bar with five or six stools, or it be an area where they can set up a, um, remember years ago when we had all those properties with those small sinks in them and it had the bar areas, and then we ripped them all out the last few years, it looks like that trend's coming back again. So uh, bar areas are, are finding to be a new trend in real estate as well. Um, so like you said, Bill, Hilton Head was just recognized as one of the top luxury markets in, um, in by Realtor.com. But what that means really is they took, let's just see what they took. They took the top 1%, what they consider a luxury market, which is over 5.5 million, and ranked those by unique visits and ranked them how fast they sold. So you can see our market is really certainly uh, trending in in um, in the nationwide in our industry as well. But let's go back and talk about those historical lows because let's get a perspective of what that means, especially when we talk about what's moving quickly. You're gonna see our market reports coming down. You're gonna see our closed sales coming way down. Uh, don't think that means that someone's not buying. It means that people, uh, there's just not that product to sell. And let me give you an example. So for 2022, January of last month, our markets, our market reports came out that our closed sales were down by 19.6% compared to January of 21. But for inventory from January of 22 compared to 21, we were down 53.8%. So you can see our inventory continues to go down. And lots of times people ask me, well, what's like, what's a good market? What's a, like a, you know, a steady market? So we look at six months, six months inventory is about steady. And what does that mean for our area? You know, what are our market numbers in that? So in 2019, in January of 2019, we had about a five month supply of inventory. So that's a pretty good market. That's a steady market. That was a good year for real estate. Um, and in 2019, we had about 2,200 listings in the multiple listing service. So 2,262 to be exact. Yesterday, when I looked, there are 279 properties on the market. So you can see we have less than a month. We probably have a couple of weeks worth of inventory right now. So um, inventory is tight. You need a realtor with you on um, buyer side, whether you're selling or whether you are buying, um, because the market is so, um, so, um, busy and, and a lot of emotions and kind of tricky at this time. So I encourage anyone to get that realtor with you. I think you'll, you'll be glad you did. Um, what do we see in the future of this? Uh, that kind of remains to be seen. I'll go back to Dr. Kelly's, what she quoted with Yogi Bear, I think she said, um, you know, I can't predict the future. So let's see where we go from here. And um, we certainly have our friends over in Hardyville that are, are building a lot of development out there. And that's a good thing. Um, but not enough inventory can keep up because we're still struggling with those supply supply demands as well. So I think that's about it, Bill. Is there any questions I'd be happy to try to answer? 
All right, Gene, thank you. And did you ever dream of having a conversation like you just just had a presentation with with those numbers, those facts and stats? No, you know, it's funny. I took this job in 2008. So the Association of Realtors in 2008, its, its peak of membership was at 1370 in 2007. Then I came in, it was about 1200. And then the market just tanked <laughs> and it went to about 840. And we've only about 2010, and then we've been trending back upwards. So um, we know it's secular, but that inventory of properties has never been like this. And, and it's not just us, it's all over the country. And Gene, that inventory question is, is one of our, our questions that, that uh, we have for you today from Molly. And Molly's asking, how many homes are there for sale right now on Hilton Head Island? Oh, gosh, gosh. Um, I don't know that number right off the market, but up 279, I would say not a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't pull those specific numbers, but anyone can go to our website, hhrealtor.com. Um, our market reports are open for anyone to see. You're more than welcome to. If you're looking more for a statewide report, you can go to southcarolinarealtors.org. So that's South, I'm sorry, screaltors.org. Uh, you can look for the market reports there and you can get any report for the whole entire state. They're open. But for our local market, hhrealtor.com, um, and you can see those market reports as well. And the uh, specific market reports by Hilton Head or Bluffton or Hardyville. And then we even have market reports by neighborhoods. So your C-Pines, your uh, Indigo Run, your Belfair, Berkeley, those are all there. And you're welcome to go and look at those. Great. Thank you. Kay's asking, has the lack of inventory on the island changed real estate in Bluffton? Uh, sure. So it just is moving. It's just kind of trending in different ways. Um, you know, certainly people are at different price points and different lifestyles that they want. So it's a matter of where people are choosing, but the market certainly has changed. Um, I could tell you for overall for the end of year market reports at the end of 21, uh, this is kind of the snapshot of the year end. Um, in Bluffton, the sales were up 9.8%. In Hilton Head, sales were at single family homes actually were down compared to 20 uh, by 6.2%, but condos and villas were up by 8.5%. And out in Hardyville, the um, market was showing an uh, increase of 11.3% compared, um, compared to 20 so uh, you can see it's a little bit all over and price point is so different. When you look at Bluffton, we ended the year with a median price point at 385.115. On Hilton Head Island, a single family home, we ended the year at 799,950. So quite a bit of difference there in, in price point as well. Gene, thank you. Wealth of information, and uh, I'm Great. sure our listeners enjoyed and got a lot out of your presentation today, and it's always good to have you with us. Great. Thanks very much. Be sure to use a Realtor. Thanks, thanks again. All right. That was Gene Beck. Well, it's almost time to get our plaid on, and you know, um, 39 days, it's hard to believe, 39 days until the RBC Heritage presented by Boeing. And here to talk about that and what to expect this year is our good friend, the tournament director and the president of the Heritage Classic Foundation, Steve Wilmot. Steve, good morning and good to see your smiling face in your office. Well, thank you. I, 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 it's going to be a tough act to follow there, Gene. Thanks a lot. Uh, 
But uh, as always, uh, Gene, you do an outstanding job with your presentations and it was great information again. But uh, um, Bill, I commend you and your team for um, continuing these power hours and uh, you know, from Mr. Murphy to Dr. Kelly as well as Gene, it was so informative and uh, good things. And I do wanna give a little extra shout out to Dr. Kelly. Um, she, along with uh, Hilton Head Healthcare, uh, regional healthcare over the last couple of years has really advised and guided us through some difficult times and um, always nice to hear the reports. It's great to hear that things are trending uh, the way they are. And uh, again, it's been an interesting time for us. But uh, um, one other thing right now too is a little shout out to Long Cove, uh, the Starius Record Invitational. It's a wonderful women's uh, sports, women's golf. It's incredible for this community. Long Cove has done an outstanding job from Bob Patton's leadership to their volunteers. And uh, it's great for them and it's great for uh, great for this community. And it's uh, exciting to see and be sure to you know check it out on TV if you can't get out there. But uh, um, that that leads into a little uh, a television event that happens in a um, in a matter of uh, 41 days. But um, it's it's an exciting time too for this community and uh, I did have the pleasure of uh, um, well I spoke to Bill earlier which is always a pleasure this week about a, a PowerPoint presentation and kind of going through some things about the foundation and I realized the best thing to do is talk about the excitement um, it's go time and it, but it's a great time for us and really talk about what's what's happening where we are and where we're going to be here in a month but. Uh, um, with that, with you know, knowing how many people are on here on this call today too, and um, I want to thank all the support. I want to thank this community. I thank the the town, the chamber, and all from our volunteers, the the patience, the understanding, and the continuing support for us to be able to um, you know to be able to put this show back on. And uh, we're back. Um, we're we're excited about things. Uh, it's going to be an exciting week for everybody. As you can tell, there is the buzzes in the community, which I'm fortunate to be a part of. And this isn't just mine or the foundation's event. It's truly uh, the community, uh, the, the low country in the state of South Carolina. And um, in mentioning each and every one of those uh, shareholders, they're all a big part of this and uh, we couldn't do it without them. But uh, just to kind of touch on a couple things, um, you know, this past week uh, on Monday, uh, we happened to have, um, we had our uh, media slash sponsor day. Uh, we had a 8.30 shotgun with the, our media. Uh, we had, um, then we had a, a program with our sponsors, uh, which is many of you that are probably on this phone too, this, um, from the hoteliers to the restaurant tours to the caterers to the real estate companies. We have many different partners, the banks. Um, but then we had a, a program for the sponsors, uh, and then when the when the media was over, when the media shotgun golf was over, we had a, a shotgun start for all of our sponsors, and then we had a, a program for the media. But what was exciting about this too was the energy, the excitement, the buzz. Um, we haven't been together in a few years, and just like here, it's nice to be. It's in this case, it's nice to be viewed and not seen, but there's nothing better than being seen and not viewed. And uh, it was nice to have everyone together as they were on um, on Monday in in all in all aspects, because we had some volunteers there as well too. And everyone's truly excited about um, you know April. 
Uh, it's been extraordinary times for all of us and all of our businesses and um, including ours. It happens to be a one week out of the year, but it is truly 53 weeks, if not 13 months out of the year effort. And I, I thank so many, and including the incredible staff I have, but also um, the trustees and the leadership that we have from our, our officers and the trustees, but also our volunteers. I mean, this community is about community and giving back. And we have 1200 strong that have been meeting regularly, um, gearing up and getting, getting ready for things in, um, in April. But, um, you know, one thing, too, is we all have, um, we've learned a lot about ourselves over the last couple of years, too, and to think of us being canceled in 20 and then being rescheduled in June of 20 and then having with no spectators and it being limited capacity in 21, getting back to full capacity or full build out. Uh, it's, it's been an interesting couple of years. And, uh, you know, we realized a lot from the foundation and the tournament staff that, you know, things that we did do five years ago, let alone last year might've been right, but it's not right necessarily now. And, uh, there's some things that we looked at going, why the heck do we do that? And we've eliminated them or why haven't we done this? And, uh, um, and let's do that. So, um, when I mentioned full capacity, one thing that we did learn over the years, too, is um, full capacity is not necessarily a good thing in a way. And when I say that is I look back at 2019 and for you that are uh, um, for you that remember Saturday of 2019, we couldn't have gotten another person out on the golf course. And as it was exciting and it was an incredible time, it was also there were some logistical and some operational challenges that we had. And uh, so we're looking and what we've learned from 21, 2021 and getting to this year that our full capacity is a number lower than where we were in 2019. And we're monitoring our tickets closer. Um, we are truly in a situation which I'm going to share with you uh, today. Um, really before it's even announced, but we're, we're, we're sold out of all of our um, shared hospitality, uh, that being the Calabogie Club, our Doc's Barbecue on 15, along with our Lighthouse Club. Um, our shared hospitality is uh, no longer available. And uh, um, so we do have Clubhouse, uh, we have a limit on Clubhouse tickets this year. Um, you know, we're trying to, what we've learned over the last couple of years is really the added value, the enhanced experience and less being maybe a, a better, but uh, so it's an exciting time. The staff's done an incredible job, but the excitement's there. I mean, this community, as Jane just mentioned, has changed too. So there's a lot of new interest and new new vibe from people going, geez, never been there, want to be a part of something special. Um, you know, Derek Payton, our vice president of sales and marketing and his team has done an incredible job along with Angela McSwain, who's our marketing director, and we're, we're, we continue to, uh, you know, we, we have sponsorship opportunities, but um, the only thing available right now are clubhouse and grounds tickets. And I would, uh, I would suggest jumping on that, that if you're truly interested, but, um, but more than anything, please understand this community this supports us in so many different ways. Uh, you know, from the rental companies that help house our sponsors and our players to the, the hotels, to the restaurants, to, you know, the entire community, you're all part of the success of this event. And if we're successful, we can certainly then in, in continue to do what we do. And that's to give back to charity. And um, we were fortunate enough with some um, the last couple of years of 
kind of stepping back a little bit with our charitable matching dollars that we have been able to get back to our 15% matching uh, program. Uh, we want to get back to where we were a few years ago of giving excess of $3 million or so back to charity. And that's why we do what we do and why the volunteers do what they do too. Um, and if we had to give a dollar an hour to the volunteers for their time and effort, we give nothing to charity. So it's truly, a, it's, it's, it's a team effort. It's a um, community effort. Uh, this is exciting. Um, this is, uh, I'm fortunate to be a part of something uh, as special as this, but it's, it's people like yourselves that make it, um, make it special for me and us to continue to do what we do and um, you know, be best in class and showcase this incredible community to the world. Uh, um, so, um, like I said, this is go time. This is execution time. This is uh, implementing our, our plans. Uh, we started the build out almost a month ago. And um, it, for those that don't come in to see fine, sometimes you don't realize that it does take a look take a few a few weeks to get to where we are will be in April and uh, um, but we're excited the staff's um, full steam ahead and uh, you know two one, one thing too because you, we, we talk community um, uh, one thing about the foundation this year is uh, each year the Heritage Classic Foundation uh, selects a tournament chairman for our uh, to, rep, to, to be basically the figurehead of the tournament for the year Simon Fraser is the chairman of the foundation throughout the, the throughout the course of the year, but we have tournament chairman. And this year we have co-tournament chairman and, and they go through, they assisted us with a sponsored immediate day and they'll be a part of opening ceremonies and they're uh, um, a big part of the term, but it's two gentlemen and it's Stan Smith and it's um, Tom Riley. And ironically, or unfortunately, I'd say the reason that the co-chair this year is they're, they're, they'll both be stepping down after this year uh, from the Heritage Classic Foundation. We felt it was appropriate to recognize these two two gentlemen. Um, I think you all know Stan. He is truly a uh, a true class act professional. Represents this community. Loves giving back and and is about giving back. And he's definitely more than a than a shoe. And then Tom Riley. Tom Riley. I've learned so much from him as well that it's. Uh, he he's about selling the sizzle and not the steak and uh, um, yes is the answer what's the question and uh, um, both of these gentlemen have done so much for the community but also for the for the tournament as um, Stan chairs our charities committee and Tom is our pro-am chairman so uh, they'll be missed I know they're not going anywhere but they're stepping back from their roles with the Heritage Classic Foundation but uh, um, so, uh, Bill, I'm more than happy. You can see I I, I didn't have an agenda. I kind of went off script, but I've never been known to be on a script. Um, but uh, again, um, if there's, I'm more than happy to take a couple questions. And actually, with that, I should um, I should mention, and I, it's, I'm pointing the finger not to scold anybody by any means, but uh, uh, one one thing that is the biggest undertaking that uh, we've ever done through the tournament, and certainly in all my years, and well ever is the fact that we are going, and I talked about tickets, but we are mobile tickets this year. Um, this has been in a, a, a plan that's got started about four or five years ago, working with um, account manager, working with uh, the PGA tour, working with other tournaments, but uh, uh, this is not COVID related, but COVID certainly kind of pushed, pushed the envelope a little bit or got us jump started even more. And, uh, we will be um, 
hundred percent with all of our, our, our tickets will be um, mobile this year. And uh, um, so bear with us. It's, it's, the, it's the right thing. It's a good thing. As you know, out there, if you're traveling, if you're going to football games, you're going to concerts, you even restaurants, things are mobile, but it's uh, the right way. Change is tough. Change is difficult. Change is inevitable. And we're, we're excited about this, uh, this move. And uh, it's going to be, um, you know, we're going to learn a lot from this year. It's only going to make us better for future years. Steve, thank you. A uh, couple questions. One, first question is, what's the best way to go about getting tickets? Where should where should uh, uh, someone who is interested? Absolutely, yeah. RBCHeritage.com, and you can walk through. And there's also the staff's done a, an incredible job in of, in spelling out how the digital process works and ordering the tickets, getting it into your wallet, and so forth too. So, uh, uh, RBCHeritage.com is the best way to go. All right, thank you. And uh, we know that the field will be be stellar once again. And so I just encourage people We heard Steve talk about how tickets are going fast. And uh, I'd encourage you to, to get that done quickly. And then Steve, as far as the uh, the the digital tickets, the mobile tickets, will people be able to transfer those tickets if they wanted not to use them every day, send them to someone else? Yeah, and that's uh, that's a part of the process. And, um, you know, you get to uh, you can transfer them. You know, we've worked with a lot of sponsors that have a, a lot of tickets in their packages, <clears throat> excuse me, in their packages. And they have to figure out how to mail and send them. We'll call and all and this way. You can send them uh, your guest or customer. If they cannot accept for some reason, something comes up, they can send it back. You can send it to someone else. So there's there's a lot of reasons why we're doing it. One of it is an ease factor, um, you know, but again, and we've thought this through, we're, we, are, we are unique in the fact of even with golf tournaments, we are, but we're not an arena and we don't have 10 en uh, entrances and 10 ways out. We are through a community, through a golf course with um, residential streets and all in access. So you will be receiving a, a, a wearable once you do enter the property, but we'll be addressing this, whether you're parking at Honeyhorn or you come down on site at the clubhouse or in Harbor Town, but uh, you will be receiving a wearable as well. So we can identify the fact that you, you didn't necessarily walk in off of a, of a home, which we have, there's over 600 homes on the golf course. So there's plenty of access points, let alone the street. So we're, we're working through all that too. And we've had a lot of tournaments that have assisted us so that we've spent with the as well as Ticketmaster, along with the PGA Tour, and uh, working through this um, um, process. All right, Steve. One more question for you, and then we'll let you go. And this is coming from Ansley, and Ansley is is asking. She's saying, interested in mobile ticket move for Heritage. How was this decided, and what are the benefits? Well, this is, again, this is a, a part of about a five, six year process, but it, it's, it's also, it's, it's, it's getting inf information that's needed. We were able to track where people are, what days they're coming, uh, access to, so we can prepare operationally. Um, you know, we are not in a, we learned a couple of years, we used to only sell weekly badges and we'd sell a badge, we didn't know who, that badge might go somewhere we're supposedly used 3.2 days a week, but we didn't know which days. And so from an operations, from a transportation to a security, the concessions, we weren't able to prepare. But but there's also a, an ease to all of our sponsors, too. Um, uh, 
um, whether it's RBC, Boeing, or Coca-Cola, I can go on and on and on that they they get a lot of tickets and this is a way for them to move them around and know who's using they internally knowing who's using them and who they might be um, giving those to as well so but uh it's a it, it is a big undertaking it is the right thing we're all in uh we talked about you know ripping off the band one band-aid at a time but we felt that uh you know working with our sponsors and working with the general spectators and uh um you know that that was important to go ahead and let's let's all in and uh, we'll figure it out, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's work, it's going well now. And since we had sponsor day on Monday, a lot of the sponsors now are having their individual meetings with our staff to work this through. But, um, you know, a lot of our partners, even our local partners here and sponsors as some of you out there too, they, you all experienced the Palmetto Championship at Congaree or the PGA Championship up in Kiowa or even USC or Clemson football or a concert over at Enmark. Uh, and, and, and this is the, this is the direction everybody's going. And there's, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a big change, but it's something that, um, you know, we, we, we totally support and feel it's the right thing for us to do. Well, Steve, we know uh, just like everything else, you'll get that right, and uh, it will bring great ease. And, and I look forward to the, the mobile ticket and just being able to share tickets without uh, having to go to will call, put them back in envelopes, and, and uh, some of the things that went with that. Yeah. Well, we're, uh, no, and that's, you know, we're working with uh, the Rotary Clubs to assist us in our ticketing. And uh, we have some other ticket directors from other PGA Tour events that will be here supporting our efforts that week. So, it's uh, we we want to make sure we over deliver, and that's uh, that's the plan. I have Tyler Schutz, our ticket director. He has no zero other responsibilities, not even taking the trash out in his office, because he is focused one hundred percent on this with uh, with our entire team. Steve, we're excited. We're ready for the tournament. We know you're almost there. It's going to be a great year. And uh, again, thank you to you for all that you and your team do to put on such an extraordinary event each and every year here on Hilton Head Island. You know, Bill, thank you. And obviously your support, but this community support, we're, we're blessed. I've had the opportunity to be a lot of tournaments around the country, but there's not a better place than right here in Hilton Head Island and uh, the low country. And thank you. All right, Steve Wilmot, so good to have him on, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed today's program. There's been lots of great information shared, and we'll continue to bring this to you, And uh, but for today, today, that's it, so I just ask that you please be kind, stay, stay safe, and take care of one another. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Chamber Channel's Power Hour. We encourage you to tune in for future episodes. Never miss one by subscribing to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. 